help, which is page 948 in your pew Bible. And uh, again, we're glad that you're here with us, whether this is your first time here or this is uh, part of what you call your faith family. Uh, this is something that we're God honors you being here. Uh, we welcome you. Uh, appreciate you're here with us. And, uh, but it's also a crowd this size. We know that we all come uh, for many different reasons to church. And since we come to many uh, different reasons to church, oftentimes we have different expectations of what to get out of church. So whether this is your first time here or this is your weekly habit of joining us, what is it that we do here on Sunday morning? Okay, worship, worship. So, so just for imagine for a second that you are the most authentic New Englander there is, all right? You know how to take care of yourself, priority number one for New Englanders, right? Okay, you're independent, hardworking, self-sufficient, a rock of certainty, maybe not the most empathetic people, okay? Uh, but, but you take care of your own and, uh, and you work hard, you're discreet with your finances, you don't live a flashy lifestyle, and you find yourself here at our church this morning. And you really got into church. The Spirit was really moving in your heart. You felt Him. When the songs were sung, times you, you closed your eyes, you started thinking about who your Savior was. Maybe you lifted a hand in praise. Maybe you got emotional like I do at times and you shed some tears that rolled down your cheek. And you go, wow. I really worshiped this morning. The things that I heard, the things that I felt, the things that I thought, I really got into it. I worshiped. Or did you? Are you really worshiping God? That's a question that comes down to us here in Romans chapter 12 on page 948 in your pew Bibles. I encourage you to follow along. Page 948, Paul is writing to Christians precisely about what is worship. As a feedback, what do you really think the most burning issues in worship are? Living for Christ? Our daily living for Christ. Okay. What aspect of the service do we most typically think about when we refer to the worship? The singing, the music. That's what most of us think about. Other times, people refer to the word worship, and they think about the style of music, right? It's a certain style and if God prefers a certain style of worship or a certain style of music, what style does God prefer? Japanese? African? Hungarian? American? Hmm, interesting. We also sometimes think that worship is about how God made us feel. I felt close to Him this morning. And so people sometimes feel their way from church to church looking for that experience. But most of the time, when people think about worship, they think of worship as an event, like this morning, a church service. This is where we go and we worship. But that's why we're actually very careful here at FCBC about using the word worship. We've been careful about this for years, but have you noticed that we refer to this as our weekly gathering? You get a weekly gathered email that kind of updates you on what we're going to preach on so you can prepare for our weekly gathering. Why do we do that? 
Because we want to teach you that it isn't just on Sunday that you worship and the rest of the week is not worship. We want you to think, as Pat said, that every single day is your worship. Because nowhere in the New Testament does it say that Sunday is the only day that we worship. It is actually very silent about the outward forms of corporate worship. Let's actually go ahead and see how Paul talks about worship is offering our whole selves to the Lord. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That might be the most important thing that you hear this morning, that worship is offering your whole self to God. It's more expansive than just singing one or two songs. Instead, we hear phrases like this throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's not about offering ourselves occasionally. It's about offering ourselves continually and always. So worship really means... Here's what it means. It encompasses everywhere we are, every day of the week, everything we do with everyone we do it with. Right? Worship means it encompasses everywhere we are, every day of the week, everything we do with everyone we know. That is what the Bible teaches about worship. And so this morning, we're going to put our worship to the test. How well did we worship? Not by the emotion that we got out of the music, not whether you like the style of it, not whether or not you like the religious words that I used or didn't use, but how are you putting the gospel in action in your relationships? That's worship. How are you putting the gospel in action in your relationships? Because up until this point, Paul has been building. Look at the fifth word in Romans 12, 1. You have to count. One, two, three, four. Fifth one? What's the fifth word? Therefore, Paul has been building in Romans 1 through 11 about all that God has done for you to save you, and now it's building to this point of put it in action because Christianity isn't about just changing your beliefs. It's about changing your behavior, who you actually are. And so this is a whole section, 12 through 16, about practical issues of how to live out the implications of the gospel. So let's put our worship to the test and maybe rethink about how spirit-filled our worship is here at FCBC. Ten questions as a test as we read through Romans 12. Now, we're not going to deal with all ten questions, so breathe a sigh of relief. But we want to read the whole chapter to get to where we are, which is verses 17 through 21. That's where we're going to stay and focus about how not to take vengeance or to not have revenge. But all of it is in light of this issue of your spiritual worship. And so here's the first question if you're taking notes. Are you being transformed? That's your first test about whether you're worshiping the Lord according to God's standard. Are you being transformed? Look at verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you know if you're worshiping the Lord? Is your life changing? 
Second question, verse 3. Are you thinking of yourself soberly? Look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Our third question this morning about are you worshiping the Lord is found in verses 4 through 8. And the question here for all of us is, are you using your spiritual gifts? How do you know if you're worshiping the Lord? Are you using what God has gifted you with, or are you a cul-de-sac in which all the water goes into and it just stops and it gets dead like the Dead Sea? Are we using our spiritual gifts? Verses 4 through 8. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So are you using your spiritual gift? Verses 9 and 10. How do you know if you're worshiping the Lord? Are you loving others? Look at verse 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Isn't that what Christ has told us in Philippians 2 for? To look to the concerns of others. Honor others above yourself. So are you loving others? Verses 11 and 12 ask us our fifth question, which is, are you persevering in the faith? There are many where life gets hard and difficult that are struggling right now, and we need to encourage them that their spiritual act of worship is this. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. He doesn't offer a whole lot of comment on these, does he? They're just kind of like 20 commands just kind of coming at you real quick. Verse 13. Are you sharing your resources? Giving is part of our worship. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 14, are you blessing others? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Number eight is found in verses 15. Are you sympathizing with the needs of others? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Isn't it ironic how hard that is? We want to weep at those that are rejoicing because we're jealous or envious of what they've got. And we want to rejoice when others are weeping because they got their due finally. Don't you see that in your own heart, that it's really hard to rejoice with those that are happy sometimes? As a church, how, do you find it easier to weep with those that are going through a hard time than it is to rejoice those that got a promotion, those that things are going well with? Do you enjoy that just as much and get in behind them and say, wow, praise the Lord, I am glad you are being honored. I'm glad you're in this season of your life. It can be difficult for us at times, but it's part of our worship is to sympathize with the needs of others. Verse 16, are you demonstrating humility? Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Those that are wise in their own sight typically are not wise in the sight of others, are they? We know how pride can get in there. And our last question this morning, 
which is going to show our distinctiveness of what it means to be a Christian. Verses 17 through 21, are you overcoming evil with good? It's part of our worship. Are you overcoming evil with good? Hear God's word, 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Man, worship involves a lot more than singing songs, doesn't it? True worship's not just singing. It's a living thing. Not just a Sunday thing, but an everyday thing. How about this? Worship isn't just a private thing. How me and God feel in this moment. But worship includes what? Others. How you serve others is worship. It's not just an emotional thing. We got teary-eyed. We felt the tingles. Whatever that is, the goosebumps. It's an active thing. It takes a lot of work to be humble, to give generously, to love others and to abhor what is evil. Can you imagine this last part here? Overcoming evil with good. Don't repay. Never take vengeance on an enemy. Instead, keep burning coals on his head by being good, showing kindness and love. That's all what it means to worship. And that stands out compared to the world, which takes us back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed by the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Christians, we are to live distinct Christian lives, particularly by how, in this section, we overcome evil with good. How distinct will that make us if we overcome evil with good? Not just global, countrywide type stuff, but just in our individual relationships. Instead of implementing the silent treatment, pursuing a relationship, instead of avoiding somebody, engaging them and having them over for dinner. Is that going to show the distinctiveness of what it means to be a Christian? When you've experienced unjust suffering, God is providing you an opportunity to show what it really means to be a Christian. The faith is, you know, is made evidence to all. So we're going to ask three questions this morning about does our worship include overcoming evil with good? What is it? Why we should do it? And how we should do it? Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, this topic of uh, your word of overcoming evil with good as part of our spiritual act of worship to you Lord, takes the transforming power of the cross. Lord, may we not only glory that the cross saves us, but may we also let the cross transform our morals and our ethics. May we not only glory that we have a Savior that died in our place and rose again, but may we see that we follow a crucified Messiah that we would also live crucified lives. Lord, I pray this morning that you would keep us all on the altar, that we would stop rolling off, doing our own thing, evaluating our worship experience by man's standard. May we rightly test our worship by your standards here in Romans 12. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonders from your law, 
that our affections would be so high for you that we willingly lay down our life, as the songs say, that we willingly have you take our all, that our worship would not just be for the hour and a half that we gather here, but every day of the week, everywhere we go, with everyone we meet, and everything we do. We ask this so we can show the world our distinctive Christ-likeness by who we follow. May, that be, may we cherish that it might be more seen than any other way than how we take unjust suffering. We ask this, Lord, that you'd work in our midst. It's your name that we pray. Amen. So what are we supposed to do? I think verse 21 is kind of the summary. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. Now, what does he mean by that? I think the rest of the passage, 17 through 21, clarifies. And basically what he's saying is, don't pay it back. Don't, don't respond in kind. When, when someone insults you, don't insult them back. That parallels Jesus' teaching, doesn't it? Matthew 5, 43 through 48, you hear Christ talking about loving your enemies. And what does he say? He says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn to him the other also. Man, hearing those commands from Christ just kind of gets you a nosebleed, doesn't it? It's like, wow, that's ideal. Only Christ could do that. How am I supposed to do that? And it sounds great, but when we think about overcoming evil with good, we have some questions. One of the questions that we ask is, does that mean I'm supposed to be passive towards evil? How about this one? Does that mean I'm supposed to feel good about the evil and the wrong that was done to me? Where's the justice if we turn the other cheek? You know, being your pastor and seeing the faces here, all of us have these minor ones, and many of us have some major ones maybe I don't even know about, but I'm seeing, you know, kind of the hurt in your face and knowing that unjust suffering is part of it, and we have to ask that question, Josh, you're encouraging me to overcome evil with good, but does that mean I have to ignore or deny or overlook that evil actually happened? It's a reason why this passage is so difficult for us. I don't know what I'm doing, but it's something wrong. <laughs> Welcome to Faith Community Bible Church. All right, we'll try to leave it like that. When something is done to us that is wrong or evil, we say, I don't like that, and we get repulsed. There is anger. Now, maybe not, not shown. Maybe we burn the inside. A lot of us are passive-aggressive. We burn the inside until we can't take anymore, and then what do we do? We, we, we pop. But when something happens wrong to you, you say, you know what? That matters, and that was wrong. And that's part of who God made you in his image is that we are moral creatures. And when something wrong happens, we do say, hey, guess what? I'm going to rake this. That matters, and you should not do that to me. That hurts. That is wrong. And so we're torn when we don't want evil to be overlooked we don't want evil to be ignored or evil to be denied, and we're torn when the Bible says overcome evil with good. So how are we going to do this? When the last thing we want to do is engage somebody, we want to withdraw or even want to get even, right? And the Bible is realistic here in two ways. In Hebrews 12.15, if you turn there, Hebrews 12.15, it's realistic in the sense of this. The Bible is realistic that if you succumb to vent, uh, revenge or bitterness, it draws harm on you. Hebrews 12:15 says, "See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up 
and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The Bible is realistic that when you want to do this evil and to get even, evil is molding you. Evil is conforming you. Instead of being transformed, you are being conformed by this world and you become part of the problem. I don't know how many times as a pastor I've had people come to me and say, Mrs. So-and-so hurt me. Mr. So-and-so hurt me. And now that person is bitter. I say, don't you see that you're bitter and that they're controlling you? They've won. Because of your vengeance, you're trying to score points. You're trying to get back. And guess what they're doing? They're controlling your behavior. You're not free. Ross Allen sent me a quote. It's hard to get ahead when you're trying to get even. So the Bible's realistic that as we become bitter and as we seek revenge, whether it's a silent treatment, cold affections, whether it's a dad who disciplines his son, not because he loves his son, but just because it's been an inconvenience that he has to get up off the couch and he's taking revenge in that way, you're ruining my day, not because your heart isn't right. We have revenge in all kinds of ways, right? As we think about those things, we have to say, you know what? Bitterness is controlling me. I am being conformed by evil. And so the Bible is realistic about the harm that it can be done to you, but the Bible is also realistic in the results. Look at Romans 12, 18. Some of you say, overcome evil with good? What good is that going to do? Well, the Bible's realistic because it says in verse 18 what? If possible. I love that phrase. Next phrase. So far as it depends upon you live peaceably with all. Why does it say that? Because there's many times where you will respond to evil with good, and it's not going to save the evildoer. They're not going to get warned. They're not going to come to their senses. They're not going to repent. But you know what's going to happen? You won't get sucked into that vortex and become doing evil yourself. You won't be conformed by it. But the Bible is realistic that at times the relationship still doesn't work out and there won't always be reconciliation. And that's why Paul says this, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So instead of you being overcome by evil, You are to quench all that animosity by being aggressive in good works. Someone once said, to melt an enemy, try the warmth of love. Right? To melt an enemy, try the warmth of love. You know, our minds can withstand an argument. Our hearts can withstand threats. If you do this to me again, I will. We can rebel against that still. But to melt an enemy, try the warmth of love. Abraham Lincoln once was criticized for speaking of benevolent treatment for the southern rebels. The critic reminded Lincoln that there was a war going on, and the Confederates were the enemy, and they should be destroyed. But listen to how Lincoln responded. I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. What worship of who God is is going to give you the power to overcome evil with good. Renouncing revenge doesn't mean that you have to renounce justice. 
Look with me here as we continue on through this passage that Paul says we can leave revenge to God. Look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Right? It's not that there is no justice. It's just that God gets to be the dispenser of the justice. God is the one that dispenses it. And the Bible says that personal revenge is forbidden. It's forbidden because when we take revenge into our own hands, we kind of forget about the whole measure for measure thing. We kind of forget about an eye for an eye, and we say, you take out my eye, I blow out your brains. We say, you cross me once, you cross me twice, I will destroy your whole character and your career online in every social media way. Isn't that true? That when we take personal revenge into our own hands, we are often more concerned about our own ego than we are about justice, right? It's about making sure that person doesn't do that to me again, which is why in God's word, there are no chapter divisions. This is all about personal revenge, because if you read chapter 13, there is no 13, the very first thing is what? The state still bears the sword, Right? There is somebody else that does that accounting nationally. But for us, for personal revenge, Paul encourages us here, and he motivates us based upon God's promise. Look at God's promise. Leave room, never avenge yourself, because why? It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul motivates us to not retaliate based upon a promise of God. The promise that frees us from being bitter or for having a vengeful spirit is that God is going to settle accounts. Can I just turn this off? <laughs> God is going to settle accounts. You don't have to worry about it. God says, yes, what that person did is absolutely wrong. Yes, they should suffer punishment for that. No, they haven't received their punishment yet. But no, you may not be the one to punish them. Why? Because God will make sure that justice is done. God will repay. Just hear this. You cannot improve on God's justice. He sees everything more clearly. He takes into every account more accurately. And his justice is more thorough than you could ever make it. So saying, God, I'll help you. I'll be your instrument of, of justice for the world. No, it does harm to you. You often get it wrong. And we are to trust God's promise. So here's an application for you. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. If someone you know in this church is angry or offended and wants to get even, is harboring bitterness or coldness or a vengeful spirit to somebody else in this body, you have to ask them, do you believe this promise here? That's the solution to how we overcome evil with good is that we have faith in the promises of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So the motivation not to enact justice on somebody else, seemingly justice on somebody else, is that you believe that God will judge rightly. So don't belittle God with some of your attempts to do it. Instead, trust the judge who will get it right. The main question is, Josh, how do I actually get the spirit in me? You told me what I'm supposed to do. You told me why I'm supposed to do it, because God will repay. But, but here's the million-dollar question. How am I going to do this? 
Well, it takes us back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, doesn't it? That we are to be living sacrifices. And our major problem, somebody else said it, some commentary said, we always like to roll off the altar as living sacrifices. We're supposed to lay there and let God work through us as we offer our life to him, but at times we roll off and we begin to do our own thing. Go over with me to see the solution to how you're going to do this in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, it all points to Christ. And the reason why we need to point to Christ is because Christ was the one person who was most grievously sinned against unjustly. Right? As you think about your circumstances and what's been done to you, the snubs, the overlooking, the not acknowledgement for what you've done, taken for granted, all these things that have been done to you, we have to now point our eyes towards who Christ was and see that he was the most grievously sinned against person. And look to him as our example, but also look to him for our power. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you're beaten for it and you endure? Okay, so you took a beating well, but you deserved it. Okay, no credit for you. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, for to this you have been called, wow, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. What example is that? Well, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you see that? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. How did Jesus take such unjust treatment in faith? Did you see the secret there in verse 23? But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Who is it that he's entrusting himself to? God, the judge. And it means here, entrusting himself. He continued to hand himself over. He continued to give himself and all the circumstances into God's hand. And he had peace through the agonizing suffering that he kept going through. He kept handing himself over, kept handing himself over, and he got through all of that in tranquil peace because he knew that God would judge justly. He knew it would come out who he really was and that he would resurrect on the third day and that he would stand with evidence and proof that he is the Son of God, no matter what the world said about him. Do you remember what he finally said on the cross? Father, into your hands I what? I commit or I entrust my spirit to you, always handing himself over to the God who is going to assess things rightly. And then look at the connection to your own life. Verse 21. 
for to this you have been called. For to this you have been called. Hear me on this. It is not just that we are saved by the cross, but we are also transformed by the cross. The cross saves us, and it is the cross that gives us a perspective on how we are to see everything. We live in a litigious society where you have your rights, and you can sue, and you can make it all better. And we have no category for a New Testament theme which says Christians that we will suffer unjustly and that we follow a Savior, not just saved by a cross, but lives by the cross in which we too will follow in his steps. And part of suffering unjustly is what we've been called to. Hear Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you. Do you hear that? It's like it's a gift. Listen to it. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you should also suffer for his sake. Friends, it is a gift to suffer. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what worship is, that I would know him, that I would experience him, that I'd feel the goosebumps of the power of his resurrection, of hope, of his life-giving spirit. We love singing those kind of songs, but listen to the rest of 310 and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Somehow we kind of forget that last phrase. I want to know the power of his resurrection, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yes, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power alive in you. Philip or Ephesians, right? Amen? But may also share in his sufferings. Do you know what God has graciously given you? Faith and the privilege to get beaten up for Christ. Now, is that what you think of worship? If not, why not? Is that what you think of worship? When we come here and we had a great worship experience, do you think of worship as overcoming evil with good? Of suffering unjustly? Worship involves a lot more than singing a song or two. It's not a singing thing, it's a living thing, not a Sunday thing, an everyday thing, not a private thing, but involves others. The question is, what are you worshiping? Yourself, your ideas, your comforts, your preferences, or are you worshiping Christ? When you worship Christ, your life becomes a living sacrifice, and you are willing to go through all kinds of things. Giving generously, loving the brothers, trying to provide harmony in church, overlooking offenses, doing good to those that have snubbed you here. So look to the cross for your salvation knowing that it was Christ who went to the cross and loved us while we were his enemies? Think about the whole Bible story as God not taking revenge. Wouldn't that be amazing for you to do this afternoon? Go home and think about this. God provided Adam with a perfect home. Adam rebelled against God. And instead of wiping him out, what does God do? Close him and promises him a savior. The whole world becomes desperately wicked, bent on evil. And instead of wiping the whole world out, God sends a missionary Noah with a message that you can enter into safely, the ark, protection. And God doesn't take revenge, but still provides a way of mercy to save the world. He calls the nation Israel to himself, and Israel is faithless, even though God is faithful, and they want a human king like the rest of the nations. And instead of God wiping them out in the desert, what does God do? 
He promises them a faithful king. And then Christ, he comes to this earth to the Jews first, who reject him as their Messiah and crucify him. He rises from the dead on the third day, and in Acts chapter 1, he says, you are my witnesses first in Jerusalem. The people that rejected me were giving them another chance. That they would see that they have crucified their Messiah and they would mourn and they would weep over what they had done. It is that God who goes through such great lengths to make peace with you. But it is also that God that is still a vengeful and a wrathful and a righteous God who when we get to Revelation 18 and all the wrongs that have been done, and all the saints that have been martyred due to sin and evil, they are rejoicing because finally God's patience is done and all justice has been restored. You have to come to grips this morning with a God who is 100% loving and 100% righteous and wrathful. He is loving enough to send the Savior to the cross to die for your sins, but he is just enough to say that all sins must be paid for. And so this morning, if you're here without Christ, there are two options for you. To pay for your sins eternally in hell on your own and be that independent New Englander that I can do it myself. Or he can pay for all of your sins by the cross. And that is the offer that he has for you. And as you understand that offer, you lay down your life and you say, I want to follow him. And that's what we have as a young lady this morning, Emily Allen, who I think has been changed by worship. She has been transformed by the renewing of her mind through a year's worth of discipleship and service. She is also someone who uses her spiritual gifts in service. Who in here has served with Emily Allen in the nursery or anywhere else? She can get a job done. How many service projects has she organized here in this church this year? I think two as a teenager to make the outside look beautiful when we didn't have a church work day. Does she love brothers? Does she give generously? I don't know. We could look at her tithing record. Emily, do you tithe? Where's she? Oh, she's at, well, currently, <laughs> she's in the back. All right. She's in the back serving. Ironic. Is she blessing others? Is she sympathizing with the needs of others? Is she demonstrating humility? In a time when many teenagers want to use their summer for their fun and their freedom, she says, I want to go to Camp Spofford, and I want to serve as a cook in a cleanup crew. You guys know me. All right. It's a problem that I have. But on Father's Day, her dad is going to commission her because every day is worship. In everything we do, with everyone we know, wherever we go. And so her dad's going to commission her. We're going to pray over her. That'll be the end of the service. Emily Allen, if you can get through this better than I can, good job. All right. Bill, come on up.